Blog Talk Radio. And welcome to The Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. Robert Siegel has more than 20 years' experience in counseling and representation of producers, writers, directors, distribution companies, and foreign sales agents concerning development, production, marketing, distribution, and exploitation of fiction and nonfiction film, television, publishing, and new media projects. His clients' projects have appeared theatrically and on network, syndicated, public, and cable television TV as well, and he's earned Academy Award and Emmy nominations, as well as awards and prizes at major film festivals. So, Carol, I understand that Robert is a donor to your Dean Film Grants. Yes, Robert fully supports filmmakers with a generous deduction of his fees, and I sincerely thank you for joining us, Robert. Thank you very much. Uh, my clients won those awards. I didn't, so I just want to make that really clear. <laughs> um, but uh, the Emmys and Oscar nominations. Uh, but it's good to be here, definitely. Oh, I know. What fun to work on something uh, and then have it win an award like that. It's uh, it's what we're all here doing. Well, let me say that what we want to cover best are cover our best legal practices today for documentaries, features, and other media makers. So let's start one place where I find that filmmakers make a lot of mistakes, and that's the chain of title. What, what does it mean, Robert, and why is it that you can't sell your film without it? Okay, the idea of chain of title, which is more of an issue really for narrative films than it is for documentaries, um, the idea is that everything that, you know, basically is the basis uh, for your project, which usually in the case of a narrative is a screenplay. And sometimes it's not just a screenplay, but a... um, an original work, like an underlying work in terms of a a novel or a play. So you have to basically secure the rights to the underlying work. You also have to secure the rights to the adaptation, if it's from a pre-existing work, as well, the adaptation of the screenplay. And then, obviously, you should have chain of title for your entire motion picture itself. And... What happens if you don't have that? It basically, sales agents and distributors they don't want to buy into a lawsuit, so they're going to basically pass. I see one of the issues I think with chain of title is needing to recognize that, especially when writing a screenplay, there may be some contributors to it, and they weren't they didn't receive like a work for hire agreement or something where the rights are owned by the production company. And then basically, after the fact, when a distributor, a sales agent, or licensee is interested, they want to know a chain of title, and somebody kind of comes out of the woodworks and says, hey, I was involved in writing that, and then it becomes like a cloud on the chain of title. It's like a house. 
where basically you need to have chain of title, you know, going back to who sold you the house, the one before that, the one before that, and there shouldn't be any liens or mortgages or encumbrances on a house. It's the same thing with a, um, you know, with a, a screenplay and a picture because it's t- totally possible to have actually security interests against screenplays and motion pictures because of certain lenders. So that's why chain of title becomes very important as as an issue. I mean, there's still, uh, you know, maybe some chain of title for documentaries, especially if you're using like an underlying book as the basis. But a lot of it is also just getting your releases and all the crew to sign off, et cetera. All right. Well, let's let's talk more about that. What do you mean when you say get your crew to sign off? Well, everybody who basically touches the project practically, but who actually contributes to the project, should basically have you know sign off as either their work is a work for hire, which where whereby even though they provided you know the writing services, et cetera, to the project, that they are um, that the ownership in those works don't belong to them but basically to the production company. If you if it isn't a work for hire, there should be an assignment of rights from the um you know, basically from the contributor, the one who provided um you know, services, the results and proceeds of those services should be assigned or transferred to the production company. A lot of times you'll see, oh, this is a work for hire, and if for some reason it's not a work for hire, then it's deemed an assignment, you know, to the production company. And assignments have to be in writing, because uh, any transfer of rights has to be in a writing. Um, so, uh, so that's why, you know, whether it's a crew member or a cast member or a crew member, member, there's going to be a provision in there about the ownership of results and proceeds or a work-for-hire provision because that's how you kind of shore up the fact that everything involved with the project is eventually owned by the production company or is licensed, like in the case of pre-existing music or something like that. Okay. Well, you need a contract with everyone that you attach. So are they usually different for a cinematographer than a sound person? So um, if so... Uh, you really need an attorney to do a separate contract for everyone if it's a feature or a doc. Well, well, I th- basically, regardless of what the project is, I think you know the idea is you know for a crew member, you know, I mean, whether it's cast or crew, anything like that, you need to have some type of agreement, and, and one of the reasons is that work for hire provision in there, uh, which indicates that everything that's being done is owned by the production company. Now, basically, for a ca- you know a ba- cast agreement, of course, it's much shorter. It may be a deal memo that has the language that covers this, um, you know, such as no equ- no injunctive relief. You can't basically have a crew member stop the process or or a cast member by basically just saying, oh, I'm going to try to stop the production. It's hard to get an injunction. You know, usually uh, you can only get money if there is a dispute because that's the adequate means of of uh, being uh, having a remedy. But it should be in the agreement that 
and if there's a dispute, the only thing that the crew or the cast member gets is is limited to monetary compensation. And again, this could be a deal memo, and deal memos run several pages, um, and or it, moving on to you know like. Uh, Sometimes key crew, it's a little more elaborate because there's some credit issues and maybe some compensation issues other than, you know, a, a fee, whether it's flat or day rate or what have you. Um, and, you know, the cast, you know, basically the cast that come to day players, the ones that are kind of, you know, basically may not have reached a certain stature or their representatives don't believe they've reached a certain stature. Uh they um, they can have basically you know cast deal memos which are similar to the crew. It's a, obviously there are provisions regarding you know, uh, you know basically their the services, the name, likeness, etc. Uh, and then my dates where they're working and all that, or weeks and under what uh, SAG after agreement. Um, but eventually. When you're dealing with those who are you know, have a certain, you know, uh, track record in the industry, a certain fame, prominence, and they have representatives who basically are being compensated in order to get those best deals for those names, uh, you know, talent, then basically it becomes, uh, you know, basically the performers' agreement where it may spell it out in more detail what the what exactly the production company and the cast member what's their rights and their obligations so it you know kind of it's kind of a sliding scale but the core terms the ones that i mentioned like two, those two should be in all agreements okay so you really <clears throat> you need an attorney early on when you're making a, a film so let me ask you for documentary filmmakers usually what's the first thing that they contact you to help them with um, frequently, it, it it will be either what they should do is if they if they're working with any other producers, directors, and so forth, those agreements should be. That's the time when you start making the agreements between the parties or between the one who's providing services and the production company. Um, that, that's that's first. Uh, often there will be an issue because uh, even though you, it's not really required to have. Uh, life rights for you know a documentary or even for a fiction feature. The reason why life rights, you know, may be basically be optioned and subsequently purchased, just like the rights to a book or a screenplay. Some of it isn't really legal. It's more business pragmatic decisions. I mean, in terms of the legal, you try to secure life rights if the person you know is living. Um, in order to have releases and waivers from claims such as uh, defamation or um, or evasion of privacy, so forth, that's the minimum that that type of agreement should do. It serves as more as a re- as a release, and then sometimes it'll become a little. You know, again, the idea will be. Uh, the life rights are used. Is it just for the documentary, you know, uh, or is it for other projects? You know, what's the scope? Um, how long do you have an exclusive on that subject? On that uh, subject, um, are they going to get compensation? There are two schools of thought. 
basically. Uh, one school says that you shouldn't compensate your subject ever because it's compromising uh, in terms of uh, you know journalistic integrity, so forth. And the other basically states, the other school of thought, is that these you know these subjects, these people, are um, you know taking time out of their lives to help you create a work, albeit by them. And if it does well, then shouldn't they get compensated in some manner? Not maybe a fee or anything, but maybe a back end or something like that. And that's an issue that basically, uh, you know, sometimes is addressed, especially uh, if you have, you know, one key subject. So, um, and, they get, and then basically in terms of documentaries, just like in features, it's the issue of the financing. Now, for documentaries, a lot of the financing is done by grants, obviously, as you know, and you know, and basically by donations, as you're aware. And of course, the the crowdfunding that's you know donation based, and that's relatively straightforward. But when nowadays we're dealing with sometimes people investing in documentaries, which people really never thought of doing, it was really more of a donation or something like that. And then you have to deal with the issues of how to reconcile that with donations and what's the deal for the investor if you know at a certain point when the investor comes in, and and then then basically a lot of it is clearances in terms of materials that are in the documentation, uh, in the documentary, and in the fiction film area it's it's the same you know except yeah obviously you're dealing with cast as well as crew, and then uh, similar ideas like location, so forth. But again, financing, I'll use another example. It may be because you're getting a license deal from, say, public television, or you're getting it from, say, one of the television services, and that may have to be factored in either here or overseas. So, yeah, the earlier the better, because it's very hard to kind of unring a bell. Oh, isn't that the truth? It's much easier because there there are so many special laws around film that and they're not um, logical. In other words, you you might so many times you would think, well, if I do this, surely there's a law that governs it, but not so much so in the film industry. So you really need to know your legal footing in many areas. So. I I've always been a proponent that you get a lawyer early. Uh, and then you it's like having someone cover your back when somebody pops up with a contract. Even my simple little one-and-a-half-page contract for fiscal sponsorship, I've kept it as simple as possible. But people want to give it to their lawyers, and I think it's a good idea. And then we go back and forth, and I, it's, it, I'm always flexible about it. It's usually... Just adding a word here or there that really, to me, doesn't make that doesn't change the intent of the contract, but it makes the filmmaker feel better, and I like it when they come in and they've got their attorney as right on board from the beginning. I think that's important. But uh, well, let me go. Back. Yes, go ahead. Oh, oh, yeah. People should really think of this: you're running a, a business, and okay, it has one product, you know. A, you know, a documentary, a feature, a media project, etc. It's part of the cost of doing business, and it's you know you have to look at it that way. And the 
problems at the beginning, it may come out of that producer director's pocket. Maybe you can get reimbursed as monies are raised. But, you know, the idea is there's certain things you have to do if you want your business to progress. Absolutely. Um, now, no, filmmakers have got to come to the realization that they're entrepreneurs, that this is a small business. Sometimes, I mean, some filmmakers are starting to get that, but the majority come into my class, my intentional filmmaking class, with the idea that I'm an artist, don't talk to me about money, I don't need to know or want to know how to discuss finances, and you can't do that. This is a business, and you... With this film and the three to five years it's going to take you to make, you want to get a return on your investment, and and here's how you do that. That's what we work on, but it's to get their minds so that they're not afraid of looking at the finances and understanding it, because the only way uh, I think that you want, when you go to close a documentary donor is that you need to know your distribution, where the film would be shown, because that's what they want to know, who's going to see it and how will you get it there, and uh, what are you going to do with my money. So you have to be able to answer those questions. And then in a feature, it's um, it's a lot more, but the basic thing is, how do I get my money back? And that's when you should know the waterfall, right? Well, you, you exactly. And and then going to the other end, which it really isn't—it isn't the other end distribution when a project's finished. I mean, I think kind of the conventional thinking was you finance, you produce your project, and you hand it over to a sales agent or a producer—I mean, distributor—and and basically you go on to your next project. Unfortunately, that model doesn't really work very well now, uh, especially as more and more. Uh, you know, exploitation of the rights are being done digitally. It isn't necessarily you're going to go to a theater and see it or see it on DVD, etc. So the question is, how do you get, you know, it's half the battle making the film. The other half is how do you get it into the marketplace? So you have to start thinking in terms of being a marketer, distributor. And that thinking really should come earlier in the process as you're actually developing and producing the project uh, it's not the sexy side of of being involved in 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 terms of motion pictures and television, but it's a, it's a very necessary side because once you make the film or you know the documentary or the narrative feature so forth, you know it's like what do we do next? And the <laughs> idea is you're gonna you know you have to have an idea where you're gonna go, and if you don't have an idea where you where to go, you're gonna have to you know engage people that do whether it's a producer or whether it's somebody who who's very good in terms of marketing and publicity and things like that. I mean, that's again, this doesn't really have to do with law per se, but it's just a very practical consideration in terms of dealing with it. And what used to be maybe one sales or distribution contract or two with foreign handling one and, and uh, and domestically, which could include Canada for North America, uh, now basically we're splitting them up. I mean, in certain cases, you're someone else, someone's handling the digital, and occasionally you'll have someone who does the, the DVD um, as as well. I mean, you know, like DVD, you know, for for documentaries and educational, I think there's still a life, even though more and more institutions are are exercising 
and using digital rights uh, as opposed to buying a DVD, that type of model. So it's uh, it's uh, you know it's a it's a it's a bit of a new world, but it's not so new. Uh, <laughs> it is, it, and it truly will allow filmmakers to make more money. The point is that they need to discover who their audience is early on, Robert, and then all the things you said become uh, exciting and possibilities, and sometimes that movie, that doc, can take you to a really broad audience where you have lateral products that you can sell. To the same audience who wants to download your film, you can make money selling products. I've seen that happen with great filmmakers. Yeah, indeed. I mean, now, you know, besides promotion, you know, it's like, you know, if you, if you give a T-shirt away, it's promotion. If you sell it, it's merchandising. You know, it's just it's, it's something, and it's not a dirty word, obviously, in terms of merchandising. You know, even for a documentary, which is supposedly a non-profit, non-commercial venture, which, you know, I mean, it, it's not rooted in the profit, but the idea is you try to at least try to recoup your money if possible, um, and... Uh, and again, you have to look at the reason you're making a film. And are you doing it really for the money, which in a lot of cases it isn't, or to get a certain word out? And that's all well and good, as long as you can scale your budget appropriately so that if you barely earn your money back or not earn your money back, you're not going to basically be in hock, so to speak, to, to your investors or others, regardless of the nature of the project. Um, so it's it obviously that's something to to consider uh, earlier on, and that's why you know when I find you know clients who don't know what the budget is, it's like how do you know what to ask for in terms of money if you <laughs> if you don't know what the budget is, and it's like or it, it could be this, it could be that, it could be that, you know, choose your own budget adventure type of situation, and and that's why a lot of times I'll ask who's the line producer for the project and what they've done because that's going to impact on how much of of the legal work will be in terms of, you know, the basic work being generated within the production company and how much of it's going to basically have to be generated by me solely. And the idea is, you know, like a location release, it's pretty straightforward. It may have to be tailored to who takes the, who you know, on the conditions of who is letting you use the property. But, you know, it's not exactly reinventing the wheel. Although I probably would rather hear here if issues come up or not, obviously, because it's the thing I, d- I don't hear about that can kind of hurt hurt them. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, yeah, it's, it's something, you know, to, to basically bear, bear in mind. It's, it's not reinventing the wheel, but you have to be aware, and if you have a doubt, you know, you should contact your attorney. I mean, rather too much than too little, within reason, of course. Right. Well, <clears throat> let's... Uh, one thing we wanted to cover today, too, is online media makers. So let's uh, tell us what which ones they are. It would be webisodes and things like that. Yeah, it, it's it's frequently webisodes um, because the idea now is, and it is kind of intriguing that in a way you can produce a program and air it. You know, you're you're your own distributor, your own television, or not, or in this case, online 
distributor. Uh, and uh, it, that's relatively, you know, uh, very innovative and very, and very new. I, th I think what you have to bear in mind when you, with the new media projects, which are online, sometimes uh, webisodes, they may be covered under under guilds like SAG-AFTRA or DGA. Frequently, then they're not. But of course, if you want to use professional actors, you know, um, you know, performers, then that's a factor. And and what a lot of people don't realize is that it's all well and good when it's webisodes because it's you know it's basically as long as you pay your fringes, it's either no money or very little money. It's when you take that project and you try to basically, you know, transport it from online to, say, television, you know, then suddenly you know, have to realize there are certain consequences to that, which may be, you know, may, may be surprising. So I guess the idea is what, what, what's the goal in terms of, of the webisodes? And a lot of times it may be you may get advertising. And usually in order to get advertising or some kind of sponsorship, you have to go for at least two, three seasons, whatever cycles there are, so that, they, that an advertiser or a sponsor knows that um, you, basically this is, there's going to be a certain consistency and longevity in the project. Um, so it is, it is frequently webisodes. Again, it's kind of new concepts, but a lot of them embrace old concepts in and of, them, of themselves. So what do you do for people who are media makers, and when should they contact you? Usually, uh, as I say, if there's a, you know, whenever people are getting involved in the development of the project, that's a good time to kind of have have it in writing what everybody's doing and what everyone is expecting and what everyone you know is expecting from them from others the production company and for themselves so it doesn't have to really be elaborate but it's something it's almost like a bit of a prenuptial agreement hopefully you can take care of it and then you can put it in a drawer hopefully not look at it again yes it does cost money but it's kind of you know it's like you pay for insurance you know, uh, I mean, uh, you know, that's the, it's the same thinking that you're paying, you're hoping that this relationship will survive if something happens to it. And if it doesn't survive, then what exactly are going to be the terms by which parties may part? And that's true of any type of project in general. Um, and, uh, and again, in terms of new media projects, they may be independently produced or a lot of times they may be commissioned you know, they may be commissioned through a sponsor. They may be commissioned by a service. And usually when that happens, it's kind of like a movie studio or a network. You, beginning, if they're going to finance it for you, they're basically going to have a control over the, you know, uh, the copyright and so forth. So, again, you try to do as much as you can yourself. Uh, if you're doing it independently for media projects and or on new media projects, as I said, you know now you have movies that could be made for like six seconds and other things like that. I mean, the the content is being sliced and diced up in you know in a lot of different ways. Where you'd have a mo motion picture and then uh, basically you cut it up into segments, and uh, that you know that it may. A lot of times, that uh, you know, that'll happen. Or you'll take segments and connect them together to be a TV program, if as long as you can handle the business and legal issues attached to it. 
So uh, there is a lot of interplay. Oh, it's incredible. Well, what do you find are some of the major mistakes that filmmakers make uh, that you could give us tips on overcome? Well, we discussed some of them in terms of one in terms of making sure your chain of title you know is is basically clear and it's and it's documented the relationships between the parties whether it's producer and director or producer and producer or writer and production company those should basically be addressed and and frequently you know on on paper and again when you start you know, taking third parties' money, you know, obviously you have to have documentation in terms of dealing with the issues of securities and, you know, whether there's exemptions, and that's a whole different aspect of it. And uh, a lot of people are hearing, you know, about, you know, equity crowdfunding, you know, where it's a donations you can get, a, you know, a return. I'm not going to touch on it too much, but I think a lot the, the rules came out, but I think people should realize that it's this is not a cut and dry as you think it is, and it's in a very embryonic state. So that's something that should be uh, definitely you know addressed. So, but but just in general, even if it's offline, and you basically are raising monies or someone's giving a loan, you know that has to be documented as as well and again for especially for documentaries getting the releases because obviously get it on site is you know it's easier than having to chase people later on down the road no one purposely tries to avoid not signing you know basically not getting a release signed it just kind of happens especially with a documentary so that's why you know there should be somebody who whose job it is if it's in the you know in terms of the crew to make sure that you know, someone has a release and then it's signed. Um, as I said, this, this is true for narratives, but especially for documentaries. And, you know, otherwise, if people are recognizably on camera for a period of time, it can become an issue. And we say, well, did you get a release for that person? And, and it's like, no. <laughs> and it's like, what are you going to do? Are you going to cut them out of the film? And then we have to go through this whole process. Yes. Yes, one of the filmmakers that won our film grant, Robert, uh, she sold her film um, to Discovery. And she used to say, Carol, every frame, they they looked at every frame, and if someone put their foot in the frame and the body was in the scene, they said, where's the release? And she said it was the toughest thing I ever went through. Yeah, you have to realize when you deal with Discovery or HBO and and public television is is you know as well or you know anyone that has a a deep pocket or a deeper pocket, you know they they're the ones that want to make sure that you know basically when the film you know the documentary or the narrative feature or the media project is delivered that these issues have been addressed and that's and usually. You know, when you get distribution or a sales agreement, that's usually when a lot of these issues come to roost, and that's much later, too late in the process to play catch-up. I mean, people do it because they have to, but no one should want to or avoid try doing it as much as possible. Um, so it's you know, it's it's that's why you know for like Discovery and for HBO and all of those, they they. Since they didn't produce it in-house, they have to rely on your warranties and representations, 
and that's the reason why one there is you know basically this analysis, and that's why media makers usually have to get errors and omission insurance, which is insurance in case um, there's a claim for copyright infringement, invasion of privacy, defamation. And the idea is to basically have the project produced and vetted so that when it comes time to get that insurance, that basically all these issues have been have been addressed. Right. Uh, we have, actually we have a uh, setup with uh, an insurance company, First Row uh, Insurance Company, that for filmmakers that as a group together with From the Hearts group, we do have a nice reduction in the price. Uh, the the uh, insurance agent puts them all together and has a very good price for that E&O insurance because that is expensive a lot of times, isn't it? Yes, I mean, uh, I mean, it's it's gone it's gone down a little. I remember after nine eleven, where it was like eight, nine, ten, eleven thousand dollars for wow. the project, and uh, you know, and now it's kind of turned into more or less the three, four, really more four to six or four to seven. Again, depending on the project, uh, and that's something that should has to be budgeted, you know. Uh, you, know, you may not know the exact number. I mean, you always can get bids, but again, those bids are always going to be subject to what ultimately is uh, submitted to the insurer, the underwriter. But at least you have a sense of the amount involved and you have accounted for it in your budget. Yeah, that's important. Well, let's talk about fair use because I would think that would be one of the mistakes filmmakers make, that they might have... <clears throat> oh, some music in the film that that they didn't intend to have, and they think that they can get away with leaving it there, um, or have pick some pictures off the internet that they think they're safe, uh, and they're not. <laughs> no, so no, they're not. And you know, basically, the, people have to realize the concept. Fair use is a defense to potential or actual claims to copyright infringement. So. The idea is, in an ideal world, all of these would be cleared. Uh, you know, whether it's a photo or a piece of music uh, or a recording, so forth. In the absence of that, you know, there is this fair use doctrine where basically, it, it in order to promote information and so forth, you can use things subject to certain conditions, even though you may not have secured a license. But it's a very narrow exception. I mean, it's gotten a little bit broader. People have to realize that the idea of fair use is, at the end of the day, people. You know, the idea is something is in a film, where it's a photo or a film clip or what have you for a particular purpose. And it's not necessarily to enhance the production value. It's because this photo, this clip, etc., has a has a purpose. A purpose like to observe to comment on something, to provide an example, to illustrate a concept that a documentarian or, or a media maker may have. Um, the idea of these film clips indicate, you know, they're very, you know, that uh, this is how 
basically immigrants were treated, you know, uh, when they first came, you know, in media when they first came to the country or something along those lines. There is a purpose for it other than it appearing in the film. And if you do have that purpose, that purpose transforms that material into something other than just being used in the film. There's a reason or a rationale. It's a comment. It's an example. It's some, there's some reason for it other than, oh, it's, you know, this will help improve the production value of the film. And, you know, whatever, you know, and, and that's, you know, that's really kind of at the heart of fair use. Um, again, there are, there's a multi-pronged test, and usually it's like whether the work is, you know, if it's going to be a commercial or non-commercial purpose. But again, it's tricky because documentaries technically are non, supposedly non-commercial, but they're in the marketplace. Um, and how much of it is being taken? The idea is you take enough to make your point and move on. You know, more is not better. <laughs> more, you know, the idea is if you want to use a, uh, you know, a film clip you know, to illustrate how Los Angeles is being depicted in the movies, you can have a lot of film clips, but if you have a film clip that runs for like one, two, three minutes or more, then, you're, then it's too much. You've, you basically are overusing it, and you're really trying to basically provide production value over and above making the com- using it to make the comment. And uh, the effect, what happens if, uh, you know, if that work is being used by the, the uh, media maker, you know, what impact does it have on the one who created the work or owns the rights to the work? Does that weaken their, you know, their marketplace? And uh, frequently that's not the case, but it's a factor that has to be taken into consideration. And, you know, what's the impact financially on the original work that's being used in the film without a license. So there is this kind of analysis. And again, there are these best practices that have really been adopted for documentary films. I mean, can these concepts apply to fiction films? Yes, but it's a little bit harder. It's a little more cut and dry with documentaries because they're, you know, you see the purposes for why you use pre-existing material uh, a lot more clearly than if it were a fiction work, where a lot of times it may be used to enhance the overall project, and that may kind of take it out of that fair use uh, argument. Right. But you do help filmmakers with fair use. Yes. Uh, you know, and basically uh, what happens is that the insurance company, uh, frequently when when a media maker will cite fair use, they, the insurance company, the underwriter, will insist on you know, a review and even a legal opinion from, the, from an attorney about why these instances are fair use. So that you know, it isn't just taking the word of the filmmaker or the media maker, uh, and that they basically have somebody who is kind of vetted and evaluated other than the one who's creating this project or owns the rights to the project. And that's why uh, any time fair use is invoked and you're trying to get errors and omission insurance, you know, uh, that basically that, that request will come from the underwriter 
and it will have to uh, they'll have to be the case. It's, and it's being requested more and more because people know how litigious society can be, uh, and also just what the stakes are and the fact that now you're you know you're not just clearing or not clearing something. You're trying to explain why you didn't get a clearance or would not be able to for a particular reason that's justified for a particular purpose. Well, then you have to look at every frame. You have to sit there and watch every bit of that movie carefully and then write up a dossier, right? In essence, that is, that is what happens. I mean, you know, you you again, you look through the film. Uh, a lot of times, you know, the, a lot of the material will already be, you know, it won't, everything isn't going to pop out as fair use, but the more you use pre-existing material and the less, the fewer times you actually get a license for it, you know, the more and you're trying to justify it, then that may be the case. And sometimes there may be in a documentary, uh, you know, 30, 40 references, you know, basically examples. Hopefully you can winnow them down, you know, and we'll try to get clearance whenever possible. Um, so... Is, you know, so, so basically, it's it's less of a task, but it's, that's the job, and that you know, basically that's the project, and the and the director producer wants to use this material, then there has to be a reviewing, a vetting, and then some kind of advising, and if it's basically outside the bounds of fair use, you know, you have to basically talk to your client, and they have to make kind of a tough decision to ever replace it remove it and it's hard to replace something in a documentary and and you mentioned like music being happen you know a lot of times like if you hear a campaign like the Clinton campaign don't stop thinking about tomorrow you know what can you possibly do it was part of the event and it was an element of the event and the purpose of having the music wasn't to make the you know, make the, the footage more exciting. It was because that was a part and parcel of it. But again, you only can don't don't use it for very long, you know, or or basically it weakens the argument. So uh, and sometimes you have to you know you may have to mute it or cut it or and it's very difficult and it's a whole different issue of over technol technologically you can actually do that and if you can't do you have to cut the footage? What do you do? And that becomes a bit of an issue. Yes, that, but it is a very important issue because you can, I, I, even if you are right and you win, let's say you get sued because over something like this, because there are some litigious people there. And even if you win, you could spend fifty to a hundred thousand defending yourself, right? That yeah, that basically is. That's the case, and that's one of the reasons why errors and omission insurance, you know, is in existence. But what many people don't realize is that there's something like, you know, your auto insurance. You have a deductible, where the first, yeah. you know, basically the first amount that you pay towards fixing the car, say, you know, is uh, is going to come out of your pocket you know, who has an insurance policy. And after that, the insurance company will, can, will kick in. You know, again, sometimes there will be a deductible where the first monies used in defending a claim may come out of the pocket of the, uh, you know, of the uh, of the media maker. Um, you know, if, if the case is, you know, if it's favorable, then maybe, 
you know, there's something that can be worked out with the insurance company, but they may just say, hey, you have a $10,000 deductible. For the first $10,000, you pay the bills, and then we come in. So that's why wow. you have to you have to take a look at what the deductible is and what's the, the the basically the the amount of the coverage per instance or in the aggregate you know uh so because you, you, usually it's like 1 million dollars occurrence and sometimes it's 3 in the aggregate or 5 in the aggregate i mean you know again depending on on the company but um you know who you know the the project the licensor the underwriter those are all you know all factors to it so you know people have to realize that uh it 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 helps because they will come in but you know if they don't see a validity to a claim an underwriter they make make you pay the first part of the first expenses that come out Wow. Deductible. Do you help filmmakers with their insurance? Because that it gets complicated. Are you good well, at reading insurance policies and advising them on that? Well, it, it, it basically in terms of, the, of those concepts and, and the scope of the of the concepts. That's why uh, frequently, um, you know, we need to know that information and and have that dealt with. And most insurance policies will deal with it. The deductible at the per occurrence or multiple occurrences in the aggregate, and also the length of the coverage. Um, you know, again, the question is, how long do you take insurance? I mean, sometimes it's going to, you know, be, it could theoretically be for the life of the copyright, but that's very, very expensive. A lot of times, distributors and sales agents and licensees will say, well, if a claim doesn't come in within, like, the first year or the first three years, they're not going to insist on continuing errors and omission insurance coverage. And that's yeah, so what they the, do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, the idea is it gives comfort not only to the one taking insurance, the production company, but also the licensee, distributor, or sales agent. And at a certain point, a business decision has to be made whether to keep renewing the insurance or analyzing the likelihood of a claim being brought after, say, three years. I mean, this is yeah. not a this is not a science. This is very much a kind of a it's a calculation of risk. Yes, I guess it is. Mm-hmm. Well, I know um, from hiring attorneys when I ran my business, uh, I had a business in Hollywood, New York, and Chicago for 30 years, and I always had uh, attorneys to help me. And I, uh, we always paid a retainer, and then um, to get to hire the ter- attorney. And then we would have use up our retainer, and then we'd get billed sometimes, or give another retainer. So, do you work that way, and do most of the um, film attorneys work like that with retainers? Well, again, depending on kind of the the experience and the and the kind of the expertise of of the attorney. I mean, when you when you start out, you may basically kind of give the benefit of the doubt to the client, and you may just send them an invoice. Um, but sometimes, you know, people they don't pay, they don't pay in a timely manner, and it is a business, so you have to kind of find the balance between that. So you have to think that how much. 
how much work do you think can be done, you know, is going to be done for this matter? And the idea is you you try to at least get enough to get started for a couple of hours, you know, um, and um, just in case for some reason, you know, you don't get any other money, you, you can't collect the rest of the money, at least you've covered part of it. It's kind of dealing with the worst case scenario, which frequently is what you have to kind of deal with. So it's it's kind of a, it's a balancing test where you have, you know, the attorney, you know, attorneys ask for very high retainers, you know, don't want to look at something unless five thousand dollars is put down as a retainer or what or, or more, and then basically the other extreme is filmmakers who basically just don't want to front any money for their own business, which obviously is a little problematical. So it's it's really finding a balance between those two points, uh, especially if you if you're going to be working not just on one matter but part of an ongoing you know, project. So that's the reason why a retainer frequently will be requested or just you know it's going to take at least this amount, so let's take care of, you know, at least try to cover part of it uh, now and then obviously it would be, re- you know, replenished. Right. Uh, yeah, All so, right. yeah. Well, mm-hmm. Give me an idea for a uh, a documentary filmmaker what they should put in their budget for legal, even if a ballpark or a range. Yeah, I mean, I mean, usually the the budget, you know, the legal line item in the budget are generally one to two percent. But you have to realize that there are there are two caveats to that. One is the very very low budget film, you know, something made for under a hundred thousand dollars because you're not going to be able to get all your legal work done for one to $2,000. And then, of course, if usually not the case, is it's a, you know, it's a multi-million dollar project, and one to 2% could be something like 50, 60, up to 100,000. That's not really going to be a, much of an issue, the latter. It's the former, the fact that you try to work that in, but also... You know, it is that percentage, but again, on the lower budgets, it may be a bit higher because, regardless of whether you're doing working on a film for a hundred thousand, a quarter of a million, half a million, one million, whatever, there are certain there's certain work that has to still be done, and that's you know the reason why you put a line item in for insurance is the same reason you put a line item in for legal, more or less. And again, you know, even though your project may be a hundred thousand dollars, you still, you know, that E and O insurance is going to be say four thousand. But your other insurance, you may wind up, you know, spending like ten thousand dollars on insurance on a hundred thousand dollar film, or eight thousand dollars, or, and again, it's that's the cost of doing business. You can try to, you know, try to work out some arrangement, but that's the one that works for both the attorney and the client. You know, otherwise, you know, it's a, it's a rough way to start a relationship. Yes, it it certainly is. Well, tell us how people can find you, Bob. Um, basically, my website is www.rls is and Sam, e n t is and Tom l a w dot com. So it's the you know www.rlsentlaw.com 
or you know basically um obviously it has all my information um um listed on the website um I mean, basically, I'm not going <laughs> to. This isn't a commercial where I'm going to give out my phone number. <laughs> they can find it. Uh, hopefully, it's Robert L. Siegel. It's S E I G E L, and obviously, they can contact. You know, uh, they can try to reach me through, obviously, you know, the Blog Talk Radio or you, Carol, and from the heart. Great, thank you. I just want to thank you so much for taking. Such good care of filmmakers. Karen Day was over the moon with the advice you gave her. Jen Cinco really loves working with you. I can just go on and on, but I thank you because I know how important it is for filmmakers when they're in a tizzy and they're all concerned and they don't know what to do and you get them on the phone and you talk them down off the wall and assure them that you can help them and they, they just... I've talked to them before and after, and it's a change that that comes over them. They feel so assured that they're in the right hands. So I th- I thank you very much for that, for all filmmakers. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you for having me here. Certainly. Okay. Thanks, Claire, for helping. Great show. Oh, sure, yes. Thank you both. Robert, looking forward to having you back. Thank you. Okay. Take good care. Be well, everyone. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Now, in its second edition, Carol Dean's popular book, The Art of Film Funding, has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls. Learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer. How to make an ask for money. Create your story structure and your trailer. Legal advice. Fair use successful crowdfunding, how to ask for music rights, and what insurance you can't shoot without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com. I want to remind our listeners that David Raiklin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions. If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. That's David, R-A-I-K-L-E-N dot com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to The Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at fromtheheartproductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone.